0: Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game-changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory-installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com.
1: Today on The Real Guy Podcast, we interview a legendary captain, Skip Smith. Skip has been a staple in the world of sport fishing, a third-generation captain who became legendary, traveling the world with a mothership called the Madam. The Madam and a sport fish boat called the Hooker. Acquiring over 49 world records, he and his partner, Jerry, pioneered many of the most popular, exclusive destinations around the world. His influence on other captains around the world is unmatched. I wanted a testimonial from one of the movers and shakers, one of the best captains in the business right now, and how Skip might have influenced him. All Hi, I'm Eric Leach. I've grown up fishing and been a sport fish captain for many years traveled to quite a few countries. So all the people I've met traveling the world and fishing, Skip Smith has to be one of the most real guys I've ever met in my entire life. Down in Panama and Costa Rica and living on the hook, the first real mothership operation, the Madman Hooker. You know, even swordfish catching them at night on light tackle six, eight pound test. The pioneering he's done with light tackle He was doing a bunch of trolling for swordfish at night, so guys like Bouncer, Rufus Wakeman and stuff were coming to him asking him about what they were doing to troll at night and now they're trying to tease him up for either pitch baiting or fly fishing for him. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is The Real Guy Podcast. Skip, thanks so much for coming into the Lunker Dog Studios and spending some time with us today. I feel like I've known your family my whole life. Um, you guys being at B.E.M.R. and starting off at ADOC. I think it was your dad, actually. I remember at, at, at first.
0: Oh yeah, well, my grandfather started it, and then my dad took it over. Probably, probably in late six, mid mid to late sixties.
1: And then, how long was your dad on down there?
0: He sold, the, when um, these cruise ships all came in here doing those one-day things, you know, those daytime things, right. t- that took away a lot of his business. When there was a little gambling one one day, I forget what year it was. I got the paper at my office. And then he uh, he w- and he and was tired of it. He was you know, ready to retire. So he ended up selling it and ended up being a lobster boat. And then I heard it sank in a hurricane over in Nassau. I tried to get Paul Roydhouse to go in halves with me on that. Right. Or I would buy it. He could manage it. No, no, no. He says he just, he just got on his first charter boat on Los Olas there, and then about twenty years later he comes up and he goes, "Man, I wish I'd have listened to you." That's where the money is. Yeah, now he's got two. Well, he had two dirt boats. I guess he sold everything out recently. So,
1: yeah, he, yeah. I, I haven't talked to him in a long time. He was was he sick or unhealthy or something?
0: I don't think so. He and I went to junior high together in high school, and and his dad was a mate on a flamingo for I years. Remember that? They were over in. Uh, Harbor West, it was called back then. Right. And, and then when you were, t- when I was 20, I guess we'd, if, if my dad was over in the Charter Dock just before that, we were on the north side. And it was a big parking lot where that hotel was. All right, The Jungle Queen was next to us. They could fill that parking lot every night and didn't have to go across the street. So... It was crazy days back then, and I used to walk over to charter boats just to see what they caught. I was like you. I was like 14 years old. I'd go over there and look at, you know, look at
1: sailfish and sharks. Oh, that's what I want to do. Right, right, right. Now, we, we uh, I mean, ADOC was just, it was just a spot. And I went to ADOC. I went to Tarpon Bend. The bridges on Los Olos, and that was kind of my route. And there was a little set of rocks on the beach. They're still there, kind of. And uh, we would sit there and cast Reflecto Spoons and catch little snooks and stuff right in front of A-Doc. And um, then go over and brag about all the fish that we caught. And all the salties were like, all right, kids, get out of here, you know, that type of thing.
0: But um, I had a mako for a, a bait boat. And every night after catching bait, we'd go to the jetties and make a few casts with black mullet. We'd catch snook and tarpon and shit and just have a blast and then go back to Cabana and top it off with a rum and coke.
1: Yeah, the Cabana days. Oh, I, yeah. Skip, I went down um, with my boat because, uh, you know, when they closed down ADOC the other day, I wanted to see if those tarpon were still hanging around, you know, where the, where the charter boats were. And I roll in there, and, there, and all the boats were gone. And there's this big green tarp up. And this feeling that I got overwhelming. Like, I cannot believe I'm not seeing the boats. I'm not smelling the fish. You know? I'm not seeing the guys running over the dock. And it was like a... I mean, it hit me hard. And when I first knew that it was, you know, going, I was like, man, that sucked. But I didn't feel like
0: that until I saw it. Have you seen it down there since it's been gone? No. Don't go. It was kind. Of, it was kind of different, anyhow. By the time I got out of there, and then all the, the kids, all the kids getting in trouble and dying and stuff like that. After my brother went through all that, then it, was, it wasn't quite the same to me, anyhow. A doc had changed away just completely from the days. It felt like you
1: lost it at that time, huh?
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It probably wouldn't bother me as much because I saw so many changes. You know, when I started there, there was no hotels. It was a little island out there. You went to Patricia Murphy's. So it was just a real two lane highway going out. To a big square out there mm-hmm. so I watched them fill in one side and build a small hotel I watched them fill in the other side and move boats and build that big hotel and then move us around and finally we went over to where the uh, that little fire department docks and then Jerry freaking jungle queen outbid us for that stuff they fucked us over because our bids rent his wasn't but of course he got a delay he knew the mayor so he got the that and kicked us out of there I mean then he charged us three times the rent and
1: so, in other words, they've been kicking the charter guys in the balls ever since then.
0: <laughs> yeah, not really. He got screwed, too, because when he was on the other side, he had a big parking lot, and things were good. People parked across the street, and then when he went there, it got even worse. Mm. So,
1: yeah. yeah. We
0: had a little bit of parking when it was here, and then, like I said, we had the dirt area.
1: Yeah, a dock was always good for, for gossip and drama. It's when I was growing up, anyway. It wasn't
0: when I was on the Dock. We'd have a blast. We were all friends and competing, and it was, wasn't like that.
1: See, my dad My dad always told me that um, when he got involved in sport fishing, you know, uh, eh, call it late 70s, early 80s, he always said, def, because, because the best thing about my experience in sport fishing goes, was the timing. And he always talked about how everybody, you know, helped each other, and there was a network of people, and it was important for everybody, for their friends and their other people that were trying to do it, be successful. And he just really told me that um the relationships that he made back then he said were some of the best relationships that he ever
0: made in his life i still talk to some of the guys that were on the dock then a lot of them are past unfortunately nowadays but you know there's still a few guys there out there that were on the dock back then that you still stay in touch with right yeah and then when i talked to the old-timers i talked to at my office you know gary stuve and roy merritt and sparky Garnsey, they talk about their era and i was like oh my gosh it was so magic then and then our ma- and then our era is now magic also to, to younger kids and you know and what those guys went through And 10 years from now their era is going to be sparkling too right. even though they had a lot of i think they had more downsides than we had because of the drugs some I mean, of our you know my brothers deck hands have died right so those drugs really mess us up but i've seen so many of the kids get messed up cuz a lot of times your charters are coming on board multi-millionaires you know very successful people and they got a bag of coke and they're partying but they go home and don't do it again right and the next charter comes on, does it again so all of a sudden now the crews think it's fine but now they start doing it every day right, right. And i think that's been the downfall of a lot of crews now the crews that that come fishing the tournaments mm-hmm. they're a whole different breed they are so into fishing they're not into the drugs or nothing they're up at four doing dredges right washing the boat at seven eight o'clock at night and then start rigging again these kids are so dedicated and so good and that's a whole different group altogether than the people that are here full time but you want to have a wife and kids you got to be here full time and make a living somehow too
1: yeah well and that's um I think that's a big piece to the puzzle with a lot of guys that you know are in that offshore scene is to have a family and to be in that scene um i mean that's such a juggling act how are you able to get through that because I, mean,
0: I didn't get through it you know i was single all those years traveling and you know then when like actually what retired me is i had a kid with a girl in uh,
1: 93
0: mm-hmm. and uh oh, i think i got it wrong 92 anyhow um I had a kid and I was in St. Thomas fishing and she goes, if you're traveling, I'm traveling. She took off and left me with a kid. So that's when I really retired and really got into the insurance business. And it was the best thing that ever happened to be a single parent and learn what these women go through with no support and had to start working on commissions and insurance, no more nice salary. Mm-hmm. And it was a life changer. Yeah. But it really made me understand being single, how tough it is. Get up in the morning, make their lunch, get them to school find aftercare, get them home, make them dinner, do some homework. And I would go back to the office mm-hmm. and work on my insurance and I'd have him in a sleeping bag. And I'd get done at midnight because I'd get a lot of stuff done then, put him over my shoulder, take him home, put them to bed again, and here we go again. So it re- I learned so much from that. No regrets. Yeah,
1: yeah. The, um, I mean, I did, a, I did the tournament scene, um, a lot of traveling through the Caribbean, but I have a 16-year-old girl now. And I can tell you to the date, When those days stopped, you know there was a time when I could tell my wife, "Hey, I'll see you in you know five or six days," or and then if I was late a day, you know it was no big deal and that kind of thing. But then I find myself sitting somewhere in the Bahamas, thinking, "Man, I kind of want to be home with my kid watching The Wiggles." You know what I mean? And it was the first time that I ever thought that way.
0: Yeah, or you're stuck over there for a month, and then the pressure comes on, honey. When you come home and help me, and you know be in the relationship you want you know that you committed to
1: right so okay so you, either family life actually turned the chapter for you and then said okay on to the next
0: i knew i didn't want to be fishing my whole life because i saw so many jobs that were three years and out i saw these captains always looking for jobs there wasn't, mm-hmm. wasn't too many jobs that lasted 20 years very few even to this day so i was like i knew i kind of want to do something else and when the opportunity came dunaway was going to get divorced i had to bring the boat back from australia and when he told me that i had a guy that had offered me a, to go build another gns and mm-hmm. get in the insurance yacht insurance business and i said well that sounds great if anything ever happens that's what i'll do well when dunaway said divorce i called that guy up and that's why i got in the insurance business because i knew these jobs don't last forever right i had 11 years with dunaway some of the best years ever but right. I, I knew that i knew there was an end someday
1: Right. That was one of the things that I wrote down that I wanted you to explain to the audience is everybody has their role when you're either tournament fishing or traveling like you were doing, and um, the owners are such a big deal. For instance, if you get a decent owner, it can make or break you as opposed to getting the wrong owner and maybe it only lasting 18 months, you jumping in with both feet and then getting burned.
0: Well, the captains go through a lot of these jobs. You know, they get a credit card and they go, boss, we need 44 rods, not just six to start out with. And we need 14 gaffs. And we, you know, and they burn the credit card. And the boss is like, all of a sudden, this little hobby is draining his account more than he ever thought. Right. You take them to the Bahamas, you take them here and there, and all of a sudden they've seen it all, done it all, and they still see the big drain. And it's like, they're done. So I've seen a lot of people being burned out like that. Where you have another guy goes through and, boss, let's just start with four rods and let's just throw it with Bimini and let's take it nice and easy and get them into it and then teach them the, you know, our love of fishing. Right. So there's a lot, of, a lot that lot they go that way. A lot of, find other bad habits. <laughs> Race cars, you know, they find all sorts of other things. They just want to go skiing the rest of their lives up in the mountains.
1: Mm-hmm. The um,
0: how, how familiar are you with the um, the real guy podcast? um i've watched a couple but i don't watch anything very much um i got eight jobs right now so i stay pretty busy and I, right. I don't watch tv hardly at all right so i don't listen to too many podcasts sometimes if i'm on a long drive i'll listen to them i'll listen to the andy's when you did one with him and there was a couple i saw that were interesting when scrolling through facebook or something and i was like oh i gonna watch this one and learn a little bit right you can always learn from these things
1: right well the reason i asked the question is the reason we do the real guy podcast and we talk about real guys. Now you were a little bit different because you got some notoriety over the years and the Madam and the Hooker was such a huge hit and the stuff that you did was you know, everybody's gossip column for the longest time. But there's so many people in the business that never get talked about. The writers never mention them, even though they're so intricate in you know, the teams that actually went out and caught, you know, all the big fish and did all the all the cool things. So if you think about people like that while we were doing this podcast, please bring them up because I love to hear the stories and the audience love to hear the stories about the real guys that never got covered before. Um, one of the most successful podcasts we've had is I I did an interview with John Tedder. I'm sure you know John. Oh, yeah. You know, just a good old boy that never loved anything more than fishing and had his ups and downs. but. When I put John on the podcast, um, people, people, I don't know, they had a different relationship, you know, and they wanted to hear that kind of stuff. So as we go along, um, you know, if you think about somebody that was part of your cruise or doesn't get recognition or you'd like to talk about, you know, bring, bring those guys up.
0: Well, Jerry Dunaway had a very large ego to feed so we got a lot of publicity. I mean we did, went to the magazines. And we were doing some fabulous things anyhow. You know, the places we went and the fish we caught. But after I got off the boats, Trevor Cockle took over. And you haven't heard anything about Trevor. Right. Meanwhile, he took the boats to the Azores. He went down to Ascension Island and caught a 1376 or something like that. One of the third biggest Marlin caught in the Atlantic. He towed the game boat over back over to Cape Verde. And he went out to Galapagos. Not Galapagos. He went out to Cocos Islands and had some great triple quadruple grand slams and did stuff with guy harvey but you never see anything written about him so after i got off the boat dunaway got a partner because he was starting to fade off and uh th- you know they weren't doing any record fishing just more fun fishing jerry's doing a little bit with uh deborah so trevor's been out there kind of quiet all these years i saw him the other night and that's what he's doing he's running some boat north and south and happily little homestead he's got but people like that, you know. Here we started in Hawaii, comes over here, and you know, been very successful. And
1: right, right.
0: There's a D- few people out there like that. I think of all the time.
1: Yeah, and that's um, you know that's uh, part of part of the reason we do these. And then um, the other big the other big push for us, is, of course, is the environmental stuff. We figure if we can get guys like you on, that people want to hear stories. And then we can slide in some of the environmental stuff to kind of make people realize where we are um, in this fight for, you know, clean water or just any good water at this point. And um, so, but if you do the content and you do the discussion and it's all about the environment, it's hard to listen to. But listen to a guy like yourself that's, you know, done things um, and been places and has good stories. It's a good mix and a good combination
0: I was on the, uh, um, the board with the Bill Fish Foundation, and I went up to Washington once, and that was pretty interesting. And then Ellen Peel couldn't make it, so she asked me to sit proxy for her. Mm-hmm. And the things I learned in Washington were crazy, the backroom deals they wanted to make, the long liners, and, you know, the commercial side. And it was interesting, but after about three trips, I went, I'm out of here. This stuff will eat me up trying to fight for the billfish you know so i've been a little bit where you're going but at the same time you know it's a different little, little different water
1: right i remember um i remember the uh the billfish foundation was doing great work and they were getting all this data and guys like yourself and my dad would travel all over the world find these places where the fish were hanging out and the billfish foundation would document it and start start taking data and then the commercial guys would find the data and then go to those places and fish. And I can remember, I mean, people were fuming, you know, when they found out how the whole process was working. Do you remember anything like that?
0: Oh, yeah. But I think it's just the opposite. The commercial guys are already out there. They're laying 40 miles of long line. They already know where they're at. We're just scratching the surface. Okay, so you so it. it was just the opposite. Just a little bit of information we were trying to get with spaghetti tags, which are very successful in the first place you can only get one out of i don't know ten thousand probably not even maybe a higher number than that satellite tag shows a lot more but that information is just getting better now with the net tags they have now years ago those satellite tags were very limited in information but those commercial boats have been out there for years at all waters
1: all right
0: what, one experience i had was in the gulf of mexico i think it was in the late 70s the uh made the chinese leave they were catching the elephants in the gulf of mexico we finally kicked them out we claimed our 200 mile limit within two years we couldn't hardly troll in the gulf without the tunas eating us up that's how fast they came back wow so here they were already in there so a little bit of tagging you might have done if it was tagging in the late 70s i think it was some tagging going on then those fish came right back even stronger and uh, every rig you went around there was tunas right so here we kicked somebody out, and made our fishing better. So they were already there fishing. And if you look at some of the stuff that we used to get information from the IGFA when we tried to find our travels, mm-hmm. a lot of that was a little bit of commercial information telling us where you know, these fish were being seen and caught, and the rest was because there was nobody fishing Vanuatu and New Guinea and all those islands down there. Very, no, no recreational effort at all. actually they didn't want us there i sent a guy to all those islands they did not want us there
1: now you were you were out in those islands in um, the 70s and 80s right in the 80s yeah in the 80s now just getting to those places in in the logistics of it was such a overwhelming task did you feel like you're did you feel like you were fishing or did you feel like you were on some sort of you know
0: Quest, some sort of huge excursion. No, we were newer fishing because we were going to places that had a little bit of information from we didn't have GPS though, so we had okay. to do a lot more navigation, different ways of navigating through radar and sat nav and and then Omega had a little bit of stuff at that time that nobody really knows about. And everybody thought we were still doing Loran, but they didn't know it ran out when you got past Key West. Right. But uh when I look back at the guys that used to go down in the 50s to Cabo San Lucas and go to Australia, those were the guys that were flying, I don't know what kind of planes, but it wasn't probably near as comfortable as a me gun. Right. You know, when I flew first flew to Australia, you couldn't even get extra leg room. I was so damn cramped. I still remember that flight. My <laughs> knees were in the back of the seat because I'm too tall.
1: Well, you were going to Australia and all these places, and you were so far ahead of it. Most of us here were just trying to get out to the Bahamas and back. Yeah, you know, I remember doing the Mako owners tournaments in the old days. And we would caravan together because of the you know, the big of traveling through the through the islands like that. Like it wasn't normal. It wasn't like everybody did it all the time. So guys wanted to make sure they had backup boats and shared information. Maybe one guy would get there before everybody else, but there's actually no way to communicate back and forth. So the whole thing was, you know, Completely different.
0: You had the Bahama Guide, that was it. I'd right. be looking at that book, but when you went for a long stretch from Bimini to uh the pocket, you know, if the current set you off a little bit, you could be at some reefs ahead. So you would try to go with maybe someone who's done it twenty times. I remember in the seventies, that some of the guys, Cuban Louie and some of the other guys, they were going to Chubb. They were going to Walkers and we barely could go to Bimini. I was right. like, that was a promised land. Right. Who knew there was a St. Thomas that was on fire, and now the DR and all these other countries that are just on fire. So I remember Alan Merritt telling me a story years ago. He said, well, we used to go tuna fish in Bimini. When we'd cross, as soon as they could see the pines, they would stop and have a shot of rum. They made it across the Gulf Stream. That was one of my favorite stories.
1: And and, and, uh, I heard stories that um, the sport fish boats that were traveling anywhere in the Caribbean, basically from here all the way to Venezuela, would load the boat up with cases of scotch. And the reason they would load up the boat with cases of scotch is so they could make friends and buy off all the government officials and things that you'd have to do when you went from island to island to island. And I guess scotch was the liquor that was really expensive out in the Caribbean compared to rum and the other stuff.
0: Yeah, we inventoried the madam and the hooker all the way across when we left Venezuela going to Africa. They said, we're going to need a complete inventory. That's the way those countries are. So we got the Abidjan, and we got there, and the officials get on the boat, and they took those papers, they flipped through them so fast, it was crazy. They found the booze, and they found the cigarettes. Right. We want this, this, and this, and this. And I said, sorry, you're not getting the cigarettes. My boss is a heavy smoker, and you're not getting his Crown Royal. I'll give you some rum, vodka. No, 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 we want this, this, and this. And so after about an hour arguing, I Gave up two bottles of this, a bunch of vodka, and only two cartons of cigarettes. My boss is proud of me.
1: <laughs> Everything was a negotiation. But, back but then. you're right.
0: Everybody wanted the scotch or the expensive booze or what they couldn't get over there. Yeah, it was a yeah.
1: big. It was a big deal, and um, I remember, yeah, I remember them loading up the boats with cases of scotch, and uh, it was. It was those were funny days. Now, talking about the, the madam and the hooker, um, explain to the audience the relevance of the madam and the hooker. Um, a lot of the, you know people that have been in the billfish world they know the story but a lot of my audience you know it's the younger generation and they just take it for granted that mother ships were were normal
0: well zane gray was actually the first real mother shipper with his sailboat and a small little dinghy he had on there that would take him fishing down tahiti when he went out there to find the big fish and he had fished uh i think tropic star lodge he'd already taken this boat down there but i'll back up a little bit further we were in Tropic Star in uh, 1986, and we had really good fishing. And then all of a sudden, sometimes the water flips down there. The Humboldt Current sends a bunch of cold water, and the fishing shut down. And uh, Jerry and I were sitting there, and we're like, I said, Jerry, if we had a mothership, we could get out of here and go places. You know, We wouldn't be stuck with just a game boat. And the year before, Jim Jenks had the OP down there, and he had like a 33-footer up in the back deck. And Jerry had seen that, so Jerry got all excited and he went back and he flew to California and looked at tuna saners and flew all over the place. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911, and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Lo and behold, right on our back door in Freeport, Texas, there was what turned out to be the Madam sitting up on the bank. And within um, 11 months, they converted that thing into what we needed. It only had two guest staterooms, master stateroom, two cruise quarters, 37,000 gallons of fuel (laughs) and they built a dry dock and they built the the tailgate on the madam to drop down and they had these two big winches and we could let the dry dock off slowly sink it put the game boat on it pull it up we tested it like once or twice Mm -hmm. and it was done they cut a big hole in the deck we dropped all the groceries down in there all the provisions filled up every freezer Pantries, everything we had, and we were gone January 1st, 87. Okay. And we had a pretty good uh, itinerary back then. We were to go to Tropic Star and then down to Peru, back up to Ecuador, and then over the Caribbean to Fish St. Thomas, and then off to Venezuela. And uh, we had a really good season. I mean, just getting the boat down there was another trip, but having that – Operation entitled us to make like four years of planning where we wanted to go and fish and uh, I wanted to end up on the French Riviera with our ugly duckling on there but I wanted to go through the, the Indian Ocean and come in and go through the Suez Canal back when it was safe and be on the <laughs> French Riviera and then we we're going to go to the Azores. We never quite made it there because Dunaway got divorced right. so we got to Australia and I had to turn around and bring the boats back but that mothership enabled us to do so many things you couldn't do back then, but if you look at all the spots we went to, there's marinas now. You don't need a mothership, right? Cape right. Verde's got marinas, you know. Mm-hmm. Peru's got marinas. All these places you can get fuel. You know that was the most hardest thing to get, and the water makers saved us coming up in the, as they were invented in the, probably they're probably around forever, but for boats.
1: Right. Now your relationship with with Jerry Dunaway, so you guys would actually brainstorm together, and then Jerry would had the means and the imagination to follow through, and then you would, how did that work?
0: Jerry had the same passion I had. It was pretty incredible when we met. In the book, I write about it, how we met and how I turned down the job because he had all the places going to the wrong time of year. But once I went to work for him, it was just, like any a great relationship to where you're like soulmates, you know. Just everything went that way. And uh, every time we made a schedule, of course, he valued my input. And mm-hmm. Everything we did, we always had great conversations. He was a businessman, and I was just a fish head. And uh, we planned all the trips, and we, we never really had a bad trip wherever we went, even went before the motherships.
1: Well, isn't that pretty much the combination you need? You need the fish head, <laughs> and then you need the
0: money guy, but that's kind of how i said it <laughs> right yeah and he that had the, he had the checkbook and i was willing to drive the boat anywhere he wanted
1: but i think i think the, the important thing isn't the money but the important thing was the open mind to do what your dreams were
0: his ego drove drove him on one side but the fishing he just absolutely loved he just the passion was unbelievable one of the funniest stories we did was we were building the mothership and we fitted the hooker. And we were in Texas and it was starting to get cold. It was about September. I said, Jerry, you don't need the boat here. You don't need me here. I said, let's go to Venezuela with the game boat. He, yeah, okay. So I, Trevor just went to work for me. We jump on the boat, just the two of us, and leave Texas, 1,000 miles to here, another 1,000 miles to Venezuela. We get down there. We caught some world records. We had some great trips down there. I mean, some really great fishing. Just catching the first one, first blue marlin on eight pound swordfish on four pounds, still a record. I mean, just fabulous fishing.
1: How many world records altogether?
0: I'm stuck at forty nine. Stuck. <laughs> it's a cool most place are, to be stuck. Stuck. Most of them are billfish, though, so I'm pretty proud of that. That's not being sharks and houndfish and whatever. Right. I mean, there was so many other things you can get. We did catch a snapper record for the owner of a uh, Tropic Star. She was kind of taking her picture with her fa- head over, for, for, hand over her face, but. Yeah. I, knew, I knew that record was available, and we'd take her up fishing if we didn't have a charter anyhow a tropic star I think that's a it's a sour taste in a lot of
1: record chasers' mouth where you know guys find some weird record that they can catch you know a little i don't know a mahara on three pound test and you know they get a world record but having the you know the majority of yours being the billfish records, it's a hell of an accomplishment,
0: oh yeah, we caught like the first sailfish in the Pacific on four pound tippet and and sailfish on eight pound tippet and we caught the first blue marlin on four pound all legal i mean nothing no just back up real fast though that's all a fallacy out there just to hook them and back up and throw them in the boat i never got that lucky no no we'd get our ass kicked one of my favorite <laughs> records was uh nine and a half hours on four pound 162 pound blue marlin right and that that lady kicked that fish's ass we gaffed it it was shot i mean we caught it like 9 30 at night we put it in a boat but that fish, but it was in Venezuela. I mean, in uh, Costa Rica. And uh, we have a video of the jumps. I never believed the four-pound would hold it. We broke them off just dropping the bait back. Right. We'd break that damn four-pound. Yeah. But uh, no, it was it was pretty crazy stuff. But
1: Well, when you guys were doing that, right, I grew up in the boat show world. So I'm with my family doing boat shows anywhere from, say, Rhode Island to Texas and during the boat shows, you know, my dad had all these cronies that would come by and they'd talk and bullshit about fishing and what's happening and a lot of a lot of the guys that you know. So while well, you guys were doing all that stuff and traveling and put together the madam and I was getting it um, I was getting it through the stories that I was hearing in the boat show gossip. You know, so as you, when when the book finally came out, I was not familiar with all the you know details in the stories, but I was like, man, I remember those guys talking about that. Oh, I remember when he did this, and I remember when he did that, and it was. And I'll tell you specifically who would come by the boat show and talk the most would be, well, Soson always felt like he had to tell a story. He was always there, and we were hearing stuff from Soson, and then my dad was good buddies with uh, Frank Johnson. So Frank, you know, he loved to tell a story. So those guys. Especially those three would be yucking it up at the boat show. And I would hear, you know, third hand what was happening with you guys. And it was a constant, you know, story. So when the, when the book came out, you know, I was looking through it and I was just like, oh, I kind of I remember those guys talking about this. Oh, I remember when they were putting that boat together. And it was, uh, I don't know, for me, it was everything because my whole thing was hanging out in this world, this boat show world. You know, I didn't know any
0: different. But you knew Fort Lauderdale, so you knew all the names.
1: Knew everybody, and didn't realize it until I got older and looked back, and I was like, "Man, I knew all those people," and didn't get it until, of course, you get older and you look back and you can see everything so much clearly. You know, you know, you um, and your brother, um, you know, I knew. You know, he was always around town, and we would talk a little bit. But one year, I worked for this guy, Mister Tupper. I don't know if you ever met Tupper. But he had an old 1968 Wood Huckins. And he liked to do those tournaments with uh, Tread Barda. And we were going to Walker's Key one day. It was actually the first time I ever worked for him. And I'm flying over on the plane to Walker's, and in the in the uh, plane with me. And we're talking and just kind of bullshitting a little bit. And then he found out that I'm fishing with uh, Marcia and Lenny, and then it was Mr. Leach. And... He was like, you're fishing with Lenny? He goes, you know, he's tough. And he starts telling me all these stories about Lenny and how tough he might be. And this that. And I was, like, getting psyched out, you know, listening to Kunta tell me about this. Then I get on the boat, and I meet Lenny and Marsha, and Lenny's rigging baits, and he takes me underneath his wing and couldn't be nicer, couldn't, you know, be more willing to show me everything that he knew. And I was just, like, thinking about Kunta. It's like, that son of a bitch had me off my game.
0: <laughs> he ended up fishing them, I think, on the bootlegger. Um, Mark Sosen fished with me in, I think it was 81, in Cozumel. And uh, he's doing the first article on us. And I didn't like writers back then because I always thought they exaggerated. one, You know, said something else that the readers wanted to hear instead of what we said. Sure. And I told him, I said, you pick out the lure and I'll catch you a fish on it. I didn't believe in colors. So we get out there, we catch a white marlin, we catch a blue marlin, we catch a sail. The fishing's great. So the article comes out, but he did ask me one question. or I had one quote in there. And i wrote all lures, and i told him all lures are created equal at eight and a half knots that's why i told him to pick any color well there's a guy in hawaii that hated me for that statement bart miller (laughs) okay bart told me everything about how different lures run i said Bart, they're a cylinder with hooks behind it (laughs) i said eight and a half knots i said it can't be that serious and oh my gosh he chewed my ass out for days every time i was out in hawaii but Sosin was he was real proud of that story when and then i found out he wrote a book years ago about colors for billfish it was pretty interesting i got the book i I went and bought it i didn't i didn't it's called through a fish's eye
1: yeah i didn't read that book by sosen look i got Soson's old book he signed for me when i was a kid
0: oh (laughs) yeah sitting up there yeah yeah
1: but so you know Soson was um he was your typical writer and one of the re- but a
0: really good fisherman,
1: too. Great fisherman and great guy. And yeah. But he was, your, he was your typical writer where he would learn a lot of stuff and do a lot of things with real guys that never got any recognition. So when social media came out and YouTube, um, which we excelled in years ago, we were so excited to show the real guy, the guy that Sosa never wrote about. Yeah. You know? And um, it's just funny that the... the I don't know how do you say it, but the the tug of war between what Sosin did that was so great and what he didn't do motivated me and inspired me to do something different. You know what I mean?
0: I can see that, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Because yeah, you know, in the old days, he uh... did
0: the first salt water show. Sosin didn't. What's that? He did the first salt water shows. Right. Everybody else was fresh water then. He came out with the salt water. We were doing a show at one time with Sosin when he was older, right near the end there, and. Skip, you're my stunt stunt double. You wind him to the boat and hand me at the rod at the last second, right. so you don't have to fight him. We're catching manitas and kings and stuff, and you wind him up, and then we get close. We get the camera going, and you give me the rod. <laughs> right, right. God bless him; he's not with us anymore.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a tough one. And there's so many guys, and um, you know, just recently, a lot of people people have um, reached out to me and wanted me to talk a little bit about Peter Wright. But I'm the wrong guy to talk about Peter Wright. But maybe having you in here, you might be the right guy to talk about Peter Wright and what he meant to the to the sport fishing world.
0: Yeah, the other night at the uh, the, the Celebration of Life at the IGFA, there was uh, quite a few speakers. There was a couple of really good ones, Lori Wright and his daughter, Bimini, was great there. Carl Anderson did a good job. Um, Brazaka <laughs> he left us with some cute words, but they all told some great stories. Peter fished with me in 82. He was my mate in uh, Poca Bueno in the tournament. We won it. So that was kind of a good start to a relationship, but we had already fished with him in Australia one time. Jerry chartered him. So that's why I invited him to come back and be our third third second mate rather. And then I'd work for him and then he came and worked for me on the Madam again. So we got to be really good friends over the years and we had a lot of fun. I told a couple stories at the at the celebration there i try to remember him. I had to sit down there at the last minute. Skip, you got to tell a story. I'm like, ah, I didn't prepare. <laughs> but I told a couple that made him laugh, and uh, we had a great time. But his, his, what he really did, especially the biggest thing I learned from is how to pull on fish, how to put pressure on fish, because he had tuned tuna fish before. Mm-hmm. And when he went to Australia, those guys weren't really ready for the heavy pressure that you really need for a black marlin. And they're, they're just, a, just a, they're a tough animal. And uh, Peter, knowing his physics behind the chair and how to put pressure on him and his boat handling, he learned from tuna fishing, gave him a great advantage over the Australians in the beginning. So he he earned his reputation because everybody wanted to fish with him because he was racking up the numbers. Mm-hmm. But that was just due to, you know, like we talk about, all these people that grew up in Hillsboro <laughs> end up going around the world fishing and being some of the top, you know, Barkey Garnsey and Obi O'Brien and, and Peter and me off the drift boat and right. it's crazy all the talent that came out of south florida back in those days but this was the place of fish there wasn't you know the northeast was just fishing a little bit in the summertime and they were going off a uh what do you call that uh radio direction finder right <laughs> so they couldn't really get out there to the canyons and do much and the gulf was pretty limited back in there you know just really started coming out in the in the maybe the early 70s. or There was was a few pioneers before that, but going that far offshore with a radio direction finder. Yeah, that
1: was huge. Or
0: even nothing, just running time and distance. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, during during that time frame, I mean, there was people moving to this part of the world, to Fort Lauderdale, Pompano, Palm Beach, like my dad. And my dad was a tuna fisherman up in Gloucester learned how, got the, you know, got the fever for sport fishing. And then, you know, that short season, three or four months, and then he wasn't fishing. So he's like, screw this. I'm moving to Fort Lauderdale where I can fish, you know, anytime I want. Full time, all the time, you know, whatever he wanted to do. And there was, he wasn't the only one. There was a a mass of people that were coming here. And I think maybe that's why my dad was always so... um, adamant that the relationships that people made with each other back then were so important, you know, because really, I mean, I can remember the first Swordfish tournaments down at the Mar. Nobody knew what the hell they were doing. You know what I mean? And, and they were piecing it together, but they were doing it basically together. And then it started to fragment later on, I think in the 90s, when they would argue about tournaments and things got a little bit I don't know. It changed.
0: Well, you think of all the early days down here in the 60s, they used to kill all the sailfish in the tournaments, and even to the early 70s. And then when they started releasing it, most people didn't want to believe you anyhow. So there was that big lag in tournaments. Swordfishing only lasted a few years because most of those fish we're catching back then were residential fish. They weren't these transit fish that we're seeing now. Now we know when they're coming through, coming down to the Gulf, and then back up again when they come down here to breed. So you see, you know the swordfish were wiped out in two or three years, and then those tournaments afterwards, there's only a fish here and a fish there being caught, so they kind of died on their own. Right. They didn't have them the right time of year, and they tried to bring them back a little bit with the swordfish, and then, of course, we've had the commercial guys out there now, so it's kind of shut everything down for the wrecks.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I wanted to I wanted to know your thoughts on the blue marlin fishing straight out of here, out of Fort Lauderdale, because I'll tell you. Um, I went to Tropic Star for the first time, I don't know, maybe it was like 1997, 1998, and got on the little Bertram, you know, caught some big fish, came home, and I always thought I needed a boat to roll, you know, through the abacos and deep into the Bahamas in order to, catch those fish but anyway i came back from tropic star and i says you know i can put together one of those boats and i can catch i think blue marlin right off the coast here because everybody kind of quit trying to do it so i come home and i get find an old 1968 over in saint pete i bring it to salt shaker and punta gorda redo the thing rebuild the 3208 cats and then proceed to start marlin fishing right off the coast of fort lauderdale it was fairly productive, and it' mind-boggling to me that guys today don't target the blue marlin that are sitting right out here.
0: With well, the outboards, they don't chase anything but wahoo's with their electric reels and swordfish, and then they go over and deep drop in the Bahamas. So the marlin fishing. I tried to do an outboard tournament. Nobody wanted to do it. Jim Lambert on the Real tight asked me years ago about catching Blue Marlin out here. I said, go out in January. Just go to the guys to swordfish and you'll get a bite. Yeah, right. He calls me on the sat phone about 1030. We just caught one skip. (laughs) But uh, in January, there's always been quite a few out here. Um, One day I was deep dropping out there for swordfish and I see this Viking trolling around us. And about two days later, I ran in. The guy goes, yeah, I was out there trolling. You were trolling around me. What would you do? Oh, we we were 0 for 3 on Blue Marlin. Yeah. So, just, just no, no target. So, in January is good. The fall is good. If you go to the Fort Lauderdale Historic Society, there's a picture on from ADOC with about 16 Blue Marlin hanging. They had a Blue Marlin tournament back then. Right. So, I don't know how they were so ass deep back in those days compared to now. But I think when I was a kid, the Gulf Stream used to come in a lot closer. Now we're going to go to the environmental stuff. But the Gulf Stream used to come in almost to the sea buoy. You'd have the sea buoy leaning over like if someone was dragging it. Mm-hmm. And now, as this, I guess as the Gulf team changes, it's going offshore here and bounce off the Bahamas, and it comes in around uh, Jupiter or something. They seem to get closer, but that probably had a big difference too in it.
1: Yeah. So. I didn't think about that. I just remember, you know, when we were kids, we'd spend a lot of time out there trolling, and we would get blue marlin. And then I would go. I went off to college. I came back. The guys were still going, you know, to the. The Bahama billfish tournaments were big back then. And people just kind of lost the Fort Lauderdale-Miami billfish quest. And they just decided that, nope, it all happens over there now. And um,
0: I think it, it's almost the same. Same thing with Bimini. They used to have some decent blue marlin fishing, but nobody goes for it. They go for wahoos or deep dropping. So, you know, first tournament I fished over there, running a boat, we caught a 506. We pulled off another one. Uh, boat next to us caught three and they, they got they won the trophy we won the money <laughs> <laughs> i think william he's passed now but he's probably still mad at me for that one <laughs> but uh no there's 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 plenty out there if they people would go put the time in but you know you got something you're going to tag and release or you drop down deep and catch a swordfish and you feed your whole neighborhood so yeah times I, have changed
1: times have changed um I don't think um, there's near as many people to sit back and dream about the blue marlin the way they did in the 70s and 80s, you know, where that drove them to buy the boat, to they, get the equipment, to find people like you.
0: I don't think people want to get their ass kicked catching a fish IGFA GFA way when you got to get in a chair and catch <laughs> them even though everybody backs up at 100 miles an hour nowadays, but still, you know, when you're out there catching wahoos on electric reel and that, or you got to go sit in a chair and sweat and catch a marlin, it's a whole different animal, but my tournaments right now i'm sold out for this year your tournaments so.
1: are, it's unbelievable I mean, i've mean, i been paying attention to the tournaments that you've been to <laughs> hey, that's, congratulations i mean that's in this day and age i mean that's it's not an easy thing
0: i take a lot of pride in the fact that we got to get boats that burn ten thousand dollars worth of fuel to go over there to fish so we have to get we don't have a captive market like a lot of places do like the white marlin open does and So, you know, I got to get the boats to come over there and fish. And to be able to get 60 boats to come over there and fish is quite a feat. But that's the magic of Abaco Beach Resort. We have a big air-conditioned tent. We feed everybody, no flies in the Bahamas. Right. And you got a whole marina where everybody gets together and the camaraderie is a secret. So that's really helped out just having that resort. And we've had great fishing. I think last year in one tournament, we had 150 or 160 fish caught in one tournament in the Bahamas. That's like unheard of. That's phenomenal. But I think that's due to the the crews, the dredges, and now the sonar.
1: Yeah, the dredges are a big deal. The last uh, last tournament, the last tournament that I fished at a Treasure Key. God, I'm trying to remember what year that was. I I built my own boat. I built a uh, forty-six foot West Mag, and my 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 goal was to go and enter one of the old Billfish tournaments, Bahama Billfish tournaments, especially. Put my own boat in instead of working for somebody or some listening to some other captain tell me about where we we're going to go and what Ye- we're going to do. At you. yeah so anyway the the reason i picked the um the Westmac is because it was a big single engine had the cleanest water out the back and all i could envision was me being on the tower and looking at my big dredges behind the boat and to do that type of fishing in that setting in the abacos i grew up in the abacos i fished there forever the way they fished, you know. Years ago, totally different than the dredges. So the boats, the I thought would work the best was the one that I built. And um, I get Mitchell Vitale that I think you know he lives down the street. Mm-hmm. And um, I tell him, listen, we're going to go over to the Treasure. We're going to enter our own boat, and we're going to do dredges. And he's like, okay. So anyway, we rolled and we did that. And I think we came in third in the Bahamas Billfish Championship leg that was in Treasure that year. And even though we didn't win, my whole thing was I wanted to do it on my own boat, making my own calls, doing it the way I wanted to do it. And I specifically wanted to be in Abaco because that's where my roots were.
0: That's a great place to go to. I mean, there's been two granders caught out of there and plenty more lost. The stories are there. So
1: My father and I, what we thought was a grander, we, we found in uh, Manjack Channel, just north of where our house was in Treasure Key and we were fishing one day, and uh, we actually went north, went north of Green Turtle, and we decided we were going to come in through Manjack Key, which we, or Channel, I should say, which we'd never been through before. And as we were coming up to it, this fish came up,
2: to get 50% off.
1: Of course, the biggest fish I've ever seen in my life, and that was the only time I think that I have ever really saw a grander was right there.
0: You're um, probably in 600 foot of water right where they feed along the edge. That's right.
1: And when guys would hire me to do the tournaments out there in, uh, from Treasure Key or, or, boat, or Marsh Harbor, the guys would be flying by us, and I'd be sitting in the Guana Channel Right there, between 6 and 1,200 feet, waiting on that outgoing tide, knowing that we could pick off a couple 150-pound blue marlin there and get on the board. Yeah. And I can remember getting owners in basically a chicken wing and telling them, no, stay right here on the reef. They're going to show up. This is the place to be as these big, fast boats are rolling by us, you know, going 40 miles out to the canyon and all that stuff. And sure enough, that would pan out, I mean, over and over and over again. And I actually have a, a young guy that's in Treasure Key now with an old salt shaker that his grandfather built that's learning the billfish game now, and he's doing the same exact thing.
0: Not to me, boat's in Treasure after Hurricane Dorian, so he's got it to himself.
1: It's I tell you, I went to Treasure um, in August, which was the first time i have been there since Dorian, and it's heartbreaking to me that so much of the surrounding islands have been rebuilt and are, are back going and treasure is just sitting there rotting and it, it's it's hard to be there
0: there was two ladies came up to me last year in the tournament saying skip would you put a tournament on in treasure i said well do you have a restaurant no do you have docks? no we're, we're still re-. i said i can't do anything.
1: yeah there's nothing
0: you, you could do yeah. I mean, I won't even. Um, I, I,
1: I've been twice since then, um, helping them with their boat over there. But I was telling my wife because we kind of grew up there. I've been with my wife since she was sixteen, so when my father bought the house over there, we were there as much as we could be. You know what I mean? And I told her the other day, I said, "You know, you really. I don't want to take it. I'd rather you remember it the way it was." As opposed to seeing the depressed state that it's in now. But the one thing about Treasure Key is it's got a couple of things. It's got that beautiful beach. The beaches. Right? Yep. And then, of course, you have the water. And those two combinations going to come back. We'll just see how.
0: Diving, fishing, everything's so excellent out of that area. Yeah. That, um, shoot, I can remember taking the trip from Fort Lauderdale
1: to treasure key when we first started going with such a feat you know what i mean our friend had a 25 mako and we had a 35 foot sport fish but the sport fish had 454s in it and if you remember the old makos would run on the big v8 omcs mm-hmm. so we were lucky just to have enough fuel to get the Mako from here to West End, never mind to to Treasure Key.
0: I was wondering where you are going to stop, yeah.
1: Yeah, and then, you know, back in those days when you did stop, you didn't know if they were going to have fuel or not. You know, there was no way to call ahead or to find out, and then when the fuel barge came, the fuel barge came.
0: Or if you got a bunch of water in your fuel because of their things. (laughs) After Dorian, with my charity, my custom shootout's a charity, we raised uh, $100,000 in no time at all to put roofs on the people that work there's house. Everybody else was building their house, all the wealthy out the Hope Town and stuff, but nobody was there to help the natives. Right. And then a little while later, I raised another 100000 to my charity, and we sent food over for Thanksgiving, and we sent more supplies over for everybody. And then I made one more call with all our people that fish at tournaments, and we sent over some more money. But that's what we've been doing with the tournament is, is giving yeah. money to the schools, the fire department, and help them all rebuild over there. And, yeah. and, and it's really coming along good. The airport's beautiful, and the resort where we have the tournament. And right after the storm, they rebuilt it in a hurry. I called it Disney World in a War Zone. Right. It was so ugly over there.
1: Yeah, horrible. Um, tell me if you feel the same way, but I've been all through the Caribbean, been from here to Venezuela. But I think the warmest people in the Caribbean are from the Abacos
0: yep no there's no doubt about it i mean everywhere we went we met the best people the best people would be around the ports and we'd end up meeting a lot of the igfa reps and every country would help us out and i was so frustrated not be able to learn spanish and talk to those people but uh when i got back and started doing seminars like you did people say where's your favorite spots and of course i said venezuela and tropic star two and a half hour flight each place you could drink the water the fishing's great. The food's great. That's right. all you can ask for. Now, Venezuela's out of the picture. Yeah. But the Abaco, to me, is still the hidden secret because they have such great fishing. All the restaurants out in Hopetown are open now. Mm-hmm. So you can leave the marina, run your little boat over there or whatever you want. And it's an international airport. You're just a couple, you know, 45 minutes away by plane. Right. And even going down to treasure, all that area is so pretty and you can swim with the pigs or swim with the stingrays. They got everything going on over there, but you got grander blue Marlin out there. You got so many white marlin. the dolphin eat you for, just you can't get rid of them.
1: <laughs> well, I look yeah. at the you know I look at all the new fancy marinas over there, you know, and I remember the old days you'd look at the marina and you know half a little more than half were the sport fishing boats with big towers and ready to rock and roll. And now maybe one in five, one in six, if we're lucky. And walking around the docks, so you just kind of want to bump into somebody that's you know, targeting Marlin. And they're far and few between now.
0: No, and most of most of the sport fishing boats bring a small boat with them, so they can go out and run out and deep drop with those things, and like I said, go bar hopping, and they don't have to wash the big boat every day.
1: Deep dropping and bar hopping—that's the—that's the—that's the new thing. We might call this episode
0: that. <laughs> might be a Jimmy Buffett song coming out soon. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> Absolutely. The um, look, you now talk to me. Um, what was your relationship with Frank Johnson and Moldcraft? Did you have? inspire him to build the lures the way he did and that kind of thing a friend of mine asked me he said oh, if you're talking to Skip, ask him that
0: peter wright went to him and asked him to build something soft he was making some other plastic materials in the day and he'd like to fish and P- P- peter said he brought the first soft type lure and had frank make it what i did i took some of his lures and i cut them shorter i didn't want the long heads i wanted the shorter heads so i could keep the hook in the places I wanted to increase my hookup ratio, so he made some other new lures called the Hooker Lure for us, and then we did some other designing for him with some other lures over the years as he tried to come up with a new product. Mm-hmm. So he had always asked us to try something or what we thought. So our relationship was very good with him because we won a lot of money on those lures. And
1: well, and he knew, and he knew he kind of had the inside track on what you guys were doing, which was part of the gossip column that. Oh yeah, you know everybody would hear.
0: Oh yeah, well he was always in touch with Jerry. Every time Jerry would come home, he'd give a, he'd talk to Frank to make sure we got some more free product and and uh, on the side of the dry dock on the Madam, we had the sponsors we had like for the first year. We had Costa, we had Moldcraft, we had Mustad, and uh, I forget the other ones. I think we had Bill Boyd's Tackle Shop on there. And I said, Jerry, we're only missing two. He goes, What's that? I said, Exxon and Winston. <laughs> We get fuel and use cigarettes. We'd say we have the right <laughs> sponsors, but I kind of wanted to look like a NASCAR. I got the idea of having sponsors, and there was no saltwater sponsors really back then. So we we started that way. So that's why Frank Johnson was very involved. And I never, I think he rode with me one time in Saint Thomas, but we never really fished together. Was we just in the shop designing stuff.
1: Right. Well, and his shop was about I don't know six blocks from my dad's. Um, my dad had a had a shop.
0: Over off Copen's there.
1: Copen's by the by the yeah. railroad, and Roy was building boats, or I think he was laying them up next to us.
0: We built a bunch of warehouses over there. Yeah.
1: yeah, and 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 how did you build your relationship with um, with the Merits?
0: Well, I was I was his second longliner in the seventies, so I met the Merit family back then.
1: Wow, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, I was the second one that got into commercial longlining. And then, uh, so we had a relationship then, and then when we built the hooker, I brought it in there, and he helped me with stuff, you know, because I didn't... didn't. My C-trial for the hooker when we built it in Destin was to run it down here. It's the second ride I took on it. (laughs) The first ride, we had a transmission problem. They fixed that, and I said, I'm out of here. St. Thomas is calling. So, and my second C-trial was from here to St. Thomas, from Fort Lauderdale. So, that's the way we did it. But uh, when I went to... Get in the insurance business. I didn't know, but Roy had an insurance agency. He was insuring all the longline boats that they owned. And they had some sport fishing, and they had an agent in there. And I started my agency up in Melbourne. And after about two years, I said, i got to be in Fort Lauderdale. That's where the action is. Yeah. So I came down here and interviewed with, uh, it was Brown and Brown back then, and a bunch of agencies, and I didn't like the dress codes or whatever. And so Roy heard I was looking. He called me up and said, get in here. Like he went there. You go up there and tell me what you want to his CFO. I told him, and the guy goes, Can't do it. I got my car. I got down the street. My my big, giant phone rings in the car and get back here. <laughs> so about third time, he says, I'll pay you. You're staying here. And uh, it's been 27 years now we've been partners. and
1: That's you know, awesome.
0: It's been amazing, amazing friendship and learning experience from him and talking boat builds and bottoms and. We don't talk about engines too much, but a little bit. But just learning about boats and stuff over the years, and
1: yeah, I mean, what what a cat seat to be down there and to watch all the all the sport fish boats that they service and made and everything that goes on down there at Merritts, and kind of, and you like to keep up, stay on the cutting edge of what's going on.
0: Yeah. Yep it's um i mean these other builders some builders are building lighter and you know nobody's really doing heavier but roy's kind of the rolls royce out there he wants the boat to be able to hit something and come on home so we may be a little bit heavier we're not worried about a knot or two yeah my dad
1: my dad always would point at roy and tell me he goes the best of the best and that's basically how he described roy
0: well, in the beginning, you you had you know some Matthews and Chris Crafts, and you really got to go back. And there was Robovich and Merritt. So it was just those two that were really building the true sport fish. But a, a lot of it, Roy and I talked about, was a lot of fallacy behind it when everybody had to have a merit Because back then, we had the best captains that wanted a merit to tuna fish. So when you have the best captains, you seem to catch more. Right. Like you see a lot of Vikings now. They got some really good captains, so Vikings doing really good. Sure, sure. And back in the day, you know, Hatteras had the same thing and many boats. So back in those days, when you got all the top captains and you're winning everything, everybody wants one. Right. So, But Roy's never been greedy. He only likes to deliver one a year, where he could deliver, you know, at the time, 10 a year or whatever. He'd just go real big like some builders do. But he's well, very picky.
1: Well, I think he had a big influence on my father and the way he built boats. My father started to build that 30-foot center console in the early 80s, and it got to be— you know a lot of demand for the thing but my father would not build more than one a month because he wanted to make sure that everything was done right and that he knew and if there was a change he knew first and he learned that stuff from roy and um i think really made you know that that philosophy quality over quantity yeah you know was huge
0: yeah, yeah. make sure the quality's there. And sometimes by taking the bait away, people stand in line longer, too. you got to take the bait away, and then they want it a bit more. Right. Where you say, yeah, I can have it next week for you, and then all of a sudden it's not as precious. Right, right. So, no, that's a good that's a good way to, to be in life. i tell you what, your dad was trying to make boats now. He has to make about 30 a month to keep up with his outboard demand. Exactly. And, um,
1: <laughs> you know, Hurricane Charlie um, rolled through Punta Gorda, where he was building the boats at the end. And he never rebuilt the boat manufacturing part of it after that because of that reason. He's like, you know, for one, the customer's not the same anymore. My father made a relationship with basically everybody he ever built a boat for. And I think that was just as important to him as the boat was, to make sure that he had the relationship and the guy was happy. And if he wasn't happy, he knew why and then did something about it. And that whole philosophy of boat building has been thrown out the window. It's like frigging shopping for cars now.
0: With a lot of the boat companies. But, you know, Pat Healy's done a great job with Viking. He's been the man behind it, and he knows everybody's name, and he really keeps his hands on I think that's one of the reasons Viking's so successful. Pete's just a person's person.
1: I never understood how Viking could could turn out that type of quality
0: with the amount of boats they built.
1: So remember they've, remember they've some done. of their
0: first? Well, every, everybody's had their bumps. He, he's, he's, but he listened to a lot of captains, and they made the changes, and they've earned it the old-fashioned way. I mean, they've really just built what the, the clients wanted. Now, I tell a lot of people that some of us custom builders learn from him because he's got so many out there, and, you know, start laying out these engines doing better. And, and, make and,
1: and the experiences. Yeah. That guy's been through, you know.
0: Yeah, no, he's done a great job. I mean, and then during the custom shootout, we get about 12 to 15 of the builders that come over. So it's really nice because they're all approachable and, and good to talk to. And they, they talk to each other and share stuff and call each other. And it's so great to see everybody get along in that business.
1: It is cool. It is yeah. cool. It wasn't always that
0: way necessarily. No, like back in our day in, in the 70s, you we even though you made friends with a lot of people, you held a lot of secrets. You didn't want to tell everybody what you were using or, you know. Secrets, okay. egos. Because you wanted to outfish the rest of the guys, so you can get the next charter. You wanted the most fish on the rack back in those days, but you still would have a drink of them every night. You just had to keep secrets. And the captains I worked for, if you told, if they told you something, you were sworn to secrecy. Nowadays, there's no secrets. I mean, Marlin Magazine helped a lot of that go away because they shared so much information to the the sailfish, Marlin crowds. But um, I think that leveled the playing field a lot when I see guys rigging bass now, they do it with their friends. Everything's out in the open. Right. When I was sword fishing, everything was in the salon or in my kitchen at house. I didn't show anybody anything. Right. So, and and that's the thing. Like the light tackle fishing, we did the records. People say, "What, what was the biggest secret?" I said, "Having the patience to do it over and over again till you caught one." Right. But there was a couple things.
1: Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and then you know, the, the secrets you know came from your experiences then. So, therefore, you know, the value to those, you know, it might be the littlest thing in the world, but it means everything.
0: Well, it helps keep people from breaking your records if you told them everything. Right. I mean, Barkey ended up breaking how most of our records anyhow with Stuart Campbell. Uh, but they were first class. I mean, we had we had great competition back in those days, going back and forth and breaking each other's records. And So, I mean, but a lot of that stuff got shared because they mothershiped off of us in Africa. And <laughs> right. So you couldn't hide things any longer.
1: Well... I mean, we could sit here and um, tell fish stories and talk about boats, but I wrote something down that I thought was kind of, well, I thought it was great. When, um, when you called me the other day, it was because of a mutual friend, Steve Cantner, and you said to me, that guy's got all my respect, all the respect in the world. How, did a guy, how does a guy like Cantner gain that type of respect?
0: But it just it just wasn't one of those real ego guys that wanted to tell you how good he was. But when you looked at what he had did and accomplished, and, and his own little niche he started, you know, teaching people how to fly fish in the canals and catch every kind of fish that's in our canals, and still saltwater fish and bass fish. The guy is so rounded out, but you, he's that guy you never heard his name. Right. I mean, he was that guy. And once more, I got to know him, the more impressed I was with him. And I think I told you earlier they called me to do a radio show years ago down here, and I said no. I mean I'm not your guy. I'm saltwater. You you need someone rounded. You need this guy Steve Cantor. and they got him. And the, and the show was very successful for a while, but he could answer all the questions. The guy wants to know about bass, snook, peacocks, you know, mangroves, sheep's head. He had it covered. Right. So we got to be very good friends over the years, and uh, like I said, those type of people they earn your respect. Just because, you know, you, you watch what they've really done and accomplished and they're not pounding their chest and blowing their horn.
1: Right. Yeah, um, I think probably the most gratifying thing about doing these recordings, and this will be the going into the fifth year, and this will be, I think, 220th recording, is at a mature age I'm able to sit down with guys like Cantner. I was able to sit down with Copeland the other day. I did Tommy, you know, a couple years ago. And to be able to sit down with them when you're 54 years old, when you had the relationship with them when you were 18, it's like a going through a time warp, you know? And then what you talk about and how you see things and how they see things are so totally different than when you knew them, say, 30 years ago. And I think you hit it on the head when you said the word respect because the maturity and the time that goes by, that respect builds like a snowball.
0: And having these these podcasts like you are doing to save all this information for the IGFA, for history for fishing history is so important. There is some may not apply, but a lot of them could apply to where we keep this stuff for people to hear years from now to so they can learn some of the history. So that's that's so important too.
1: I want to end the podcast on an environmental note. Um, from your experience and from what you've seen over the years. Do you have hope that we're going to get some of this water quality issue rectified down here in South Florida?
2: From,
0: from I don't read the news a lot, but I see a little trickle happening up in Stewart, a little start. So I think that little trickle should be able to trickle down with all the environmentalists out there. So I, so I definitely have hope. I was fishing off Venezuela in the, in the early uh, early 90s. And I think everybody throws their garbage out on the top of the mountain. And as it goes down, it ends up in the Amazon. And we would get about five miles offshore, going offshore to going and do north there out of Venezuela, and we would come across a plastic line. And it had to be about at least 10 yards wide, maybe wider, and just for miles. All that plastic coming out. Just all those Publix bags or whatever kind of bags they have down there. Mm-hmm. And I would have to turn and run parallel till I found a skinnier part to go through so I wouldn't suck it up in my engines. So there's a lot more to do just besides what we have in Florida. Right. So the Australians have been very good at it. What they taught me in the early 80s, when you went out to the, the reefs out there, they wouldn't use a regular anchor. They use a dra- grappling hook, so they wouldn't damage any reefs. They would separate their garbage every day. So if people could do more of that alone you know they would throw the paper way offshore mm-hmm. the cans they would smash and take it in the glass they would put in. so they kept their garbage to nothing in any food they would of course feed the fish so just what i saw back in the 80s what they were doing compared to what i see now driving near your house today i saw a lot of recycle cans out right. in my neighborhood i don't see any and i'm in a nice neighborhood yeah. people right. just want to throw all their beer bottles and cans and soda bottles in the trash it's that's the stuff we really got to take care of and once we get more visibility on what you're doing with the sewer and the canal i went to plantation high school in 11th grade and my biology teacher did a test on new river way up by bradford mm-hmm. and we and she found hepatitis in the water then i helped her take samples so i got the cheat off of hers to get my grade but she was doing it to get her bachelor's or whatever and uh that's what i mean we found the hepatitis back then but back then it was different bottom paints and different you know they're trying to keep some of the paint out of the water but right. that water all the way up there needs to be somehow revived because you look at our reefs offshore here they they put the sewer outlets right on top of the third reef if they were going out to three or four hundred feet of water it's all mud bottom it would have been better for treated sewer so we've had so many problems and the sewers are still going off instead mm-hmm. of just take them further offshore if that's what we really got to do but at the same time i mean it's already killed our reefs and that's why we don't hold any bait anymore we don't no big kingfish. when i was a kid we used to catch 80 kingfish a trip in the mornings in right. the winter time right now you're lucky to catch two a trip because nothing's holding out here because we do have a lot of current out here but
1: our yeah, saving grace right
0: <laughs> yeah yeah we got, well we got to start with the, the rivers the, the mangroves i was thinking the other day we should all have something that we attach to our seawalls that's like a mangrove that, even if it's fake, that would help hold fish eggs and stuff like that.
1: It's so crazy you mentioned that because the mm-hmm. podcast that I just uploaded on Monday, the city of Fort Lauderdale is getting ready to upgrade six miles of seawall. And we went to a civic association meeting with the person that's head of uh, seawalls, Nancy Gassman. And we asked her, "Says do you have any plans to do living seawalls or to plant mangroves or to do anything in the six-mile stretch that you're going to do? And they don't, and it's not on a priority list for them. The one thing that um, we're developing now, Skip, that I've never seen before. Years ago, they would have that meeting in the Civic Association in Rio Vista about the water quality, and there might be two or three people that would show up there was like 30 or 40 people that showed up to that meeting and were asking real questions and actually knew the problems that we had. And I think there was always a few people that knew and could understand, but you kind of had to be like me or you, where you looked at the water every day to get it.
0: They had to walk through the sewer in their front yard.
1: Right. It opened up some eyes, and now they're, the, the crowd is growing, the conversation is growing. Now if we could get just a little bit of leadership you know, here in Fort Lauderdale... And I'd like to see us be the leaders of what you can do to an area that you've overdeveloped.
0: That would be a great idea. I mean, mangroves were everywhere when I was a kid. And they not only knocked down the wakes because you didn't get the bounce off the seawalls. It held all the crawdads and shrimp and all the fish eggs. And that alone... I don't know if it's artificial or if we could keep a trim along the seawalls would be one of the best things ever because it nutrients the water too. It helps clean the water up.
1: That's uh, that's been our number one push, um, at least my, especially my number one push is mangroves, um, simply because they can live in the crappy water that we have now. We don't need the city to manage them or to do anything once they're planted and they're rolling. You know they'll do what they need to do. And if you go through the canal system here, and you do find a hundred feet of mangroves, which is only about five feet left in the whole fucking city. But you will see birds, and you will see bait, and you will see small fish hanging around them. I'm not saying that we can make the canal system the way it was when we grew up here. But we can make it where things can live in
0: it. Who, it, who uses the first two foot of their seawall? Nobody. They build a dock six foot out. So if we could build something two, three feet out, God bless us. Right. And like you
1: said, there's there's simple solutions, but without leadership from the city... Things as simple as planting a fucking tree or a big deal. So we have to get over that. And I think, you know, with the number of people that are paying attention, I think we're finally getting some momentum there where maybe we can start seeing some changes happening from, you know, from the inner city. When, um, in your experiences over in Venezuela, did you ever run across Gildo Bellini?
0: Mm, can't say I did.
1: Gildo taught my dad how to. Marlinfish over there in the old days and Tommy Green and um Joe Monson, the guy named Herb Bryant. Jildo was our guy over there and I know you spent a lot of time over there. He had a book called the, the Coco, and I just didn't know before you left I wanted to know if you ever met that guy. He was a big big influence on my dad and me.
0: I was there in the early days and I left in the early days I, was, I got there in 85, 86 and then eighty-seven for the spring. That was just starting, the spring season. And then went back in ninety-one, ninety-two, but didn't really see too many people. back mm-hmm. in Back in those days, it was starting to expand. And then in the late nineties, it really got going. Yeah, this in the would, late nineties.
1: Yeah, this would have been in the eighties. That's why I asked. There there's only really a couple of people. George Morrison was over there, and then Jill Doe, and there's three or four other you know guys that would actually fish hard out of there.
0: Ronnie Hamlin was there when I was there. Herbert Johnson. And then Stuart Campbell had his little chunda down there at 37 Merritt, but that was about the only four American boats I remember being there.
1: Yeah, these guys all had criss-crafts, all the yeah. nice mountain dudes. Yeah,
0: they had a couple of criss-crafts in there at the Yacht Club.
1: Yeah, and my dad sold them the criss-crafts when he worked at Rody,
0: Yeah. So anyway, you know, that... I probably met the guys down there, but you meet so many great people in this business, unfortunately, you can't remember so many names.
1: Yeah, well, I can barely remember even being there. I'm just glad that I was part of it in <laughs> the old days. Yeah,
0: no, that was place was special, special. And they're still finding special places down in Brazil now, and still coming along.
1: Skip, I can't, I can't thank you enough for taking some time out of your day and coming over here and doing this recording with us. I wanted people to kind of look past the Madam and the Hooker story and realize that where Skip Smith came from and what he's meant to so many people in the sport fishing world. So I really appreciate your time.
0: Well, uh, you're welcome. You you got to get back to this great sport we've enjoyed, and hopefully everybody else can enjoy it and take care of it a little better than we did. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, hindsight's twenty twenty, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. But I think these kids are a lot smart, you know, more more educated in what to we need done.
1: Totally different. Totally different than when we were going up. The like you said, the crews and the kids and stuff. They're not spending the time partying and all that. They're actually going to bed early the night before a tournament, so they wake up fresh. Totally different than we, when we did
0: Well, no, these kids are serious. The captains are serious. They're, they're not screaming and hollering like we used to get yelled at. No, it's a whole different world out there, but they're doing it really good.
1: Well, congratulations on the tournament series that you're doing. Keep up the great work with all the help that you're doing over there in the Bahamas.
0: Our charity's doing great, yeah.
1: That's so cool.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, where, can, uh, where can the audience um, see the charity and, and maybe contribute?
0: If they just go to customshootout.com or skips com, you can see all the computer stuff we do and then uh we don't we're not real big social media putting mm-hmm. stuff on, but maybe I'll hire a young kid to help me out with this that this year <laughs> in the years to come here.
1: Probably wouldn't be a bad idea. I gotta to tell you social media um, it's a monster. And it's all about taming it and once you do you can really rock and roll with it.
0: When you're when you're sold out every year you don't feel like you need to do that stuff, but we probably should share more of those uh, pictures and the smiles out there and
1: Well I think the cause is what I think the cause is the where you can expand. Maybe you can't get more boats and all that, but the message and the cause and people know they wanna help.
0: Well, I haven't been paid in 21 years of doing it, so everything goes back to charity. But we give money to Joe DiMaggio's Children's Hospital, a little bit there. A lot of it goes to the National Breast Cancer Foundation. Um, we've given money to so many different other places to help out. So it's it's, it's crazy. I get a few letters now, and then people asking for money. So we try to help them out, you know, help out with uh, this melanoma program that's really doing good, finding melanoma on people because all our crews get it. Right. So we've done real good, and uh, I really enjoyed writing that check. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool.
1: Skip, one of the realest of all the real guys I've ever had on the podcast. Thanks so much. Run that dog.
0: Real, Real guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> good stuff.